personally, I'm very dismayed by what I see going on in Washington and by efforts to hide the truth from the public. Uh, and I'm doing what I can to, you know, to change that and to bring bring the facts to light. But gosh, it's going to take a lot of people and a lot of work to <laughs> get this paradigm shift that we need to to give us a healthier food system and a healthier environment. Welcome to Farm On, the podcast where I get to have conversations with agriculturists, artists, and activists on the front lines of the food movement. I'm Joe Phillips. In the early 1960s, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, was an instrumental as a catalyst for the modern environmental movement. In fact, Silent Spring really altered the course of history by forcing a ban on the herbicide DDT, an active ingredient in Agent Orange during the Vietnam War, and spurred a sweeping changes in the laws that affect our air, land, and water. In the first chapter of Silent Spring, uh, Rachel Carson writes, um, Future generations are unlikely to condone our lack of prudent concern for the integrity of the natural world that supports all life. There is still very limited awareness of the nature of the threat. This is an era of specialists, each of whom sees his own problem and is unaware or intolerant of the larger frame into which it fits. It is also an era dominated by industry, in which the right to make a dollar at whatever cost is seldom challenged. When the public protests, confronted with some obvious evidence of damaging results of pesticide applications, it is fed little tranquilizing pills of half-truths. We urgently need an end to these false assurances, to the sugarcoating of impalatable facts. It is the public that is being asked to assume the risks that the insect controllers calculate. The public must decide whether it wishes to continue on the present road, and it can do so only when in full possession of the facts. In the words of Jean Rostand, who is a French uh, philosopher and biologist, the obligation to endure gives us the right to know. My guest today has been compared to Rachel Carson for her book, Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. And it's a valid comparison, I think. Carrie Gillum is a veteran investigative journalist with 25 years under her belt as a former senior correspondent for Reuters International News Service. And she's been researching and writing about the health dangers associated with the agrochemical companies, namely Monsanto, and their products, mainly Roundup, which is also called glyphosate, which continue to be so widely used in our food system that we could easily remain uninformed if it weren't for the dedicated reporting of journalists like Gillum and organizations like the U.S. Right to Know, a group that is pursuing truth and transparency in America's food system. So interviewing Carrie was a stretch for me since she's an expert interviewer herself, but I think that we had a good chat anyway. I started by asking her about one of her most frequently practiced skills, filing for Freedom of Information Act requests, and I hope you enjoy. Act, there are certain provisions that allow the government to redact, you know, black out certain right. things. Okay. Um, and they're very specific. And so if they want to redact it under that provision, then they have to say, you know, this is B4, this is a B5. Pretty typically, um, it's known and documented they will, you know, 
illegally blackout things. So the things that really mm. can't be um, are not actually under the falling under the B five or the B four. Mm. Um, B five is. Uh, like allows for deliberative process, like allows for the government people to talk amongst themselves about about a decision that they haven't yet made. But okay. so deliberative process. But you know, if it's something else and they call it B five, how do you know? Because you can't, right. see, you can't see the it. information. So, but um, you know, so then, it's been documented by others as well as myself. So I have like sources in FDA who will give me the unredacted documents and then I can compare them to the redacted documents. So uh, I can see when FDA is, right. is redacting properly or not redacting properly. And, uh, but then that just takes more time for you to jump through all those hoops, right? You have to uncover all that i'm guessing that must take time oh yeah and it's not easy and then there's not a lot you can do about it um mm. unless you want to file a lawsuit which is you know right. did, did that with epa it's not easy to find lawyers who want to spend that time and energy so that actually brings me to one of the questions i have for you about the um your involvement with the u.s right to know uh, how does that organization work, and how did you get involved as the head researcher for the U.S. Right to Know? Yeah, so I mean, what we primarily do is file Freedom of Information Act requests um, mm-hmm. and state record requests. Uh, they there are different laws for state record requests and and federal records, um, but that's what we do is uh, do research that way. We work with academics to um, bring the information that we uncover you know, to light through academic journals, medical journals, scientific journals. We work with journalists like at the New York Times and Bloomberg and elsewhere uh, sharing their documents. A lot of European press in particular with glyphosate and Monsanto have been interested uh, in using our documents. Um, so we just bring information to the public. It's available yeah. and people uh, want to use right. it. A lot of our documents, like I have a call later today with um, – researchers at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, uh, to go into their document library, basically. Mm. And they're going to um, take all my freedom of information documents and post them there with search engines and everything so members of the public uh, or other researchers can use them if they want to. You talk about um, you weren't always like in tune or in touch with ag- agriculture and kind of the effects of industrial ag. And I think you mentioned that you were even a self-described suburban mom. You know, can you talk about your life before your roundup kind of awareness? Or- right. So my mother's family, uh, my mother grew up in Southeast Kansas in a rural, uh, rural community, a farming community. And so I spent a lot of time there uh, as a child. And, you know, we had friends who ran a dairy farm and, and, a, and a hog facility, hog production. And, you know, I, I rode horses and I, you know, was familiar with sort of that rural lifestyle. What was the name um, of the closest town? Like, biggest? Chanute, Kansas. Chanute. Chanute. Um, C-H-A-N-U-T-E, yeah, Kansas. So I grew up in Woodward, Oklahoma, which is right at the panhandle of Oklahoma, and mm. I had relatives in Elkhart, which is pretty close to the border. Right, so I always sort of had an appreciation and love for the sort of lifestyle, but mm-hmm. didn't know anything really about food production, and 
you know, spent most of my career um, trying not to be in Kansas. You know, I wanted to be in mm-hmm. big cities and uh, doing big things and uh, really enjoyed covering the banking industry uh, in, you know, in Atlanta. Uh, and wasn't super excited about being assigned to cover food and agriculture for Reuters, but, you know, I had children and it um, was hard in Atlanta with the traffic and Mm -hmm. high cost of living. So Mm -hmm. Kansas was a good choice to raise my kids and move back and started learning all about food and ag and the companies that were dominating the industry and really making revolutionary changes. Uh, and that was, you know, Monsanto and DuPont and Dow AgroSciences and mm-hmm. Syngenta and the others. So that, I started my research in the 90s and never and stopped. So really it was that assignment that kind of uh, put you back into your, your uh, home state. Right. Okay. If you were disenchanted back then when they assigned that kind of work to you, um, obviously it's your, it's your life and your passion now. But um, what was it do you think that I guess I'm, – I guess I'm just trying to identify with maybe – um, some part of your audience for the book uh, that might be mm-hmm. um, skeptical parents or people in academia or just general public who um, have an inkling that there's something wrong with the food system but just need that like avalanche of information um, to convince them. So what um, uh, now that it's now that it's your life now that it's your your work primarily um looking back what do you think was your was your kind of block what was it that you thought you know this doesn't interest me this is dull or this is too right whatever i don't think i don't think people do appreciate sort of the profound work that is done by farmers Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know you you hear read sometimes about farmers uh, complain about that. Um, but it is true. And I didn't appreciate it until I spent time with farmers and spent time studying the food production system in our country. Uh, you know, we produce food, not only for Americans, but for people around the world. And I say we, not we, of course, but mm-hmm. um, but these farmers who really, you know, it's blood and sweat and tears and toil, and they mm-hmm. spend, you know, so much money and love and devotion to raise corn and soybeans and, uh, you know, wheat and canola and and everything else that we need to make the food that we eat. Um, And they can do everything exactly right. And Mother Nature can come in and with one hailstorm or, you know, an extended drought or, you know, uh, late freeze, a late spring freeze can just wipe out all of their work. And so they're constantly on the front lines, um, you know, so of, of this really risky endeavor yeah. working to produce food to feed us all. And most of the profits in this food system, they don't see those. Right. They're, they are, uh, you know, recouped by people much further up the food chain. Um, so, it's you know, so it's precarious. really... It is, but it but we all eat. You know, right. other industries, banking or whatever, influence our lives. But every single one of us eats, and food is critical to our health, to our, um, you know, to our economy, to the pro- productivity of our citizens. Um, and the way so, the land you know, is treated, I've, the ethics of the land, the stewardship. I mean, well, that's a course. huge yeah. part of your book. 
Right. right. Yeah, and that doesn't even, right, uh, the environmental side of it also has profound uh, implications for our, the way we live now and the way our children will live in the future. So, you know, I've come to believe, obviously, there almost is no more important topic, and uh, there are some real concerns with modern industrialized agriculture, particularly when it comes to the pervasive pesticides Mm -hmm. um, that are used that have been pushed upon farmers, really, by this handful of companies that make billions of dollars off of these things. And so when you're talking to farmers and when you're visiting their farms and and getting to know them on a personal level... um, what kind of pressure are are they under to grow just a couple of different crops? Do do farmers really have a choice about what they can plant? Well, their choice has been, uh, you know, minimized over the years as the seed companies have consolidated and really come under the control of some of the giants. Like Monsanto now is the world's largest seed company. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, its history is as a chemical company. Uh, it, of course, is a purveyor of glyphosate herbicides, and it's the largest seed company. So... I mean, to answer your question about pressure on farmers, yeah, for row crop farmers, you know, in the Midwest and, and, uh, you know, in the heartland and down in the south to a certain extent, there's been quite a lot of pressure both from the companies and from our federal government through policies that incentivize farmers Mm -hmm. to grow one or two crops to rotate corn and soy and corn and soy and corn and soy and corn and right. soy. Both, um, both very nutrient-depleting crops. Right, which, right, you know, require uh, or, you know, some believe require heavy doses of pesticides. And right. particularly as you're monocropping like this and you're losing your diversity and you're impacting your health of your soil, uh, you know, many farmers are using more pesticides. Mm-hmm. Um to try to combat those those detrimental impacts of, of this. So, you know, it's a vicious cycle that we're on, and a lot of people are understanding that we need to change that, both within our government, within our farming community, mm-hmm. within our food company uh, circles. It's just a matter of, you know, how we do it, how we get there, and mm-hmm. what types of policies and practices are encouraged. And yet, um, even though there's this kind of growing consensus that we need to um, change this uh, vicious cycle that you talked about. It's it seems like Monsanto and others are just doubling down. I mean, the latest uh, tweet from you, or one of the latest, was about Monsanto just straight up offering cash, cash back to farmers if they use this new um, right. herbicide Dicamba. called dicamba, <laughs> which is just. I mean, it seems like there's no. Um, there, there's no doubt in the in the research community that uh, dicamba is just deadly. What does that say to you about Monsanto just just offering cash? It's something like over fifty percent cash back on per acre if farmers right. use dicamba and farmers are resistant. Right. So what does that tell you about the industry right now? Well, yeah, I mean, and this is this is not, I guess, that surprising. I mean. This is Monsanto's answer to weed resistance. Farmers mm-hmm. used Monsanto's glyphosate-based Roundup so extensively uh, and, and so aggressively that weeds became resistant. And so Monsanto's answer was, <laughs> well, let's just more combine glyphosate with dicamba, right? More pesticide. 
and we'll put it over these new GMO crops, you know, and people have warned that this would be very devastating um, to farming communities, that it would injure non-GMO fields and could wipe out, you know, other crops. And, of course, that's what has started to happen. And so different states are trying to ban the use of this now. And farmers are wary of it and worried, and there are lawsuits going on. So, right, so Monsanto's answer is, well, let's just basically pay them uh, to use it. Because if they can indoctrinate, if they can infiltrate and indoctrinate this pesticide-dependent system, you know, by hook or by crook, (laughs) you know, they get in there, and then it's hard to break the cycle. It reminds me of a drug uh-huh. dealer just, like, offering the first, you know, the first deal is free and everything else after that. You're just you're just locked into it after that once you're sort of tied into that vicious cycle. Yeah. Well, there's a gentleman, you know, quoted in my book who made that very same point, and I had mm-hmm. never thought of it that way before, but that was mm-hmm. certainly his position and his perspective that mm-hmm. you get them hooked and, and then they can't break free and then right. you just keep raking in the cash. <laughs> and I mean, the terrifying thing to me um, and probably to a lot of people is just the political uh, climate that we're in now and uh, the, the, the kind of, the support for that kind of doubling down, the support for, for this kind of like nihilistic hell or high water kind of approach to everything, you know, foreign foreign policy and and uh, the acknowledgement that things are really, really toxic, but it doesn't matter. We're just going to full throttle, power it through, and uh, the 0.1% Monsanto being up there as well is going to as you said, rake, rake in the benefits. Um, how much harder is it for you to see the, the glimmer of uh, a light through that tunnel in the, <laughs> given the political kind of uh, climate right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the way that I think about it, I guess is, you know, it, the, the corruption or the worshiping at the altar of <laughs> corporate profits, you know, is a little more subtle, perhaps, in previous administrations. Under the Trump administration, they don't even try to mask it. Uh, it's just, you know, what the corporations want, the corporations are going to get. And that's mm. what you're seeing with the transformation inside the Environmental Protection Agency right now with, uh, you know, people coming in from the... Um, you know, chemical industry Scott to take leading positions in the EPA and, and, and people underneath Scott Pruitt as well. And, you know, they're rewriting laws or loosening restrictions on these toxic pesticides. And, you know, the best example probably is chlorpyrifos, which is known to be dangerous, uh, is known to have neurodevelopmental um, problems for children mm-hmm. uh, to create problems for children. It's been banned from household use. It was supposed to be banned from use on our foods. Mm-hmm. And the Trump administration came in and said, nah, forget it. We don't need a ban. Dow Chemical wants us to keep it on the market. It's We're insane. Going to. It's insane. Total disregard. Knowing, knowing the facts, knowing that there's good mm-hmm. research. Total disregard. It is crazy, but at the same time, we've been you know, for eight years, kind of in the neoliberal bubble of everything's just, um, 
business as usual. Now it's kind of in our face, but which is more insidious, I guess, you know, I mean, there's, I mean, this has been going on for a long time. It's not like Trump, um, uh, kind of, uh, like meddling with Mm -hmm. is the fact that it's now sort of more, um, obvious, does that make it easier to talk about in a way to sort of rip off the band-aid like that? Mm, well, that's a positive way to think about it. I'm trying. I'm trying to find the silver lining in all this, you know? Right, right. No, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it it is pretty worrisome to someone like me, a journalist mm. who sort of believes there should, you know, truth and transparency should be the guiding, you know, light. And if we all just have the good information, we can make good decisions. Um, that all seems to be sort of turned upside down these days um, right. when maybe truth doesn't necessarily matter and fake news seems to rule the day. And uh, so, yeah, the the EPA is, is a really worrisome um, it place is. right now, I think. It is. And reading your book, I was just, I was astonished how many examples you gave of the EPA which has the word protection in their name. I mean, they're there funded by tax dollars to protect not only our environment, but also the FDA, USDA mm-hmm. as well. That's their job. And yet it seems like the EPA at every turn uh, is more than willing to just do a sort of pay for play um, kind of getting in bed with the bigger corporations and not doing their jobs, um, which right. leaves us kind of flapping in the in the wind and having to fend for ourselves. I mean, yeah. do we I just mean, need to scrap all these regulatory agencies and try something new? Right. Or what? Yeah. Who knows what the answer is? I mean, there are good people in these agencies, hardworking scientists, you know, who are trying to do their jobs and do the research to protect the public. Uh, you know, and they are frustrated, you know, and they try to make their voices heard when they can. And, um, but it's hard when you have a top down system and you have political appointees and you have lawmakers who are, you know, taking in all this money from big corporations and, uh, and powerful individuals, uh, who have specific agendas. Um, so, you know, we, in our capitalistic society, uh, we worship profit and wealth, mm-hmm. and it seems that that has become the overriding priority to public safety uh, yeah. and environmental health. So, Look who's at the helm. I mean, our leader is not afraid mm-hmm. to flaunt his his wealth, and that's, that's his most redeeming quality. And, it, you know, I just read a, a quote the other day about millennials and that they overwhelmingly want to be rich and famous, not necessarily known for their, you know, merits or their accomplishments. Right. But I, but I do, but I know millennials. I mean, I teach children and I know young people and I, and I feel like there's a consciousness about making choices for the environment, making choices that are based on research So it's there. I mean, I think we just have to keep trying to follow, you know, the facts and see where they lead us and hopefully, you know, informed people and engaged, you know, people, the populace, members of the public Mm -hmm. will be motivated to, you know, stand up and demand more accountability from our policy makers. I'm only one person. I certainly don't think that, you know, my own views and my own opinions 
are those that others should have or should follow. I, I understand we all come from different backgrounds and we all have different um, priorities and values. So again, I just, you know, in this book and throughout my work, I'm trying to bring information to life that people can incorporate into their thought process and into their debates with themselves and with others uh, to move forward. So, uh, you know, yes, personally, I'm very dismayed by what I see going on in Washington and by efforts to hide the truth from the public. Uh, and I'm doing what I can to, you know, to change that and to bring bring the facts to light. But Gosh, it's going to take a lot of people and a lot of work to <laughs> get yeah. this paradigm shift that we need to to give us a healthier food system and a healthier environment. Did you have an audience in mind for this book? Because it's kind of a it's kind of a combination. I mean, a lot of it, like I said, is data research, um, uncovering documents um, and studies. But there's human there's human stories too. There's farmers who've died from cancer there's widows of those farmers who are profiled in the book there's researchers um jonathan lundgren who i just thought was a great i just think he's a great character and really emblematic of a lot of the kind of inherent problems so first of all who do you did you have an audience in mind for this book whitewash well just really everybody moms and dads and my neighbors across the street you know uh and farmers and the scientists and i mean we're all people and like i said we all eat uh and Mm. so anyone who's interested uh or curious about what's happening with our food system here in America and the pesticide use. That's, I mean, that's my audience. And that would include policymakers and school teachers and, um, you know, everybody. Everyone. <laughs> like everybody I, who eats everybody, food. Right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, um, I, I, and I think maybe everybody doesn't read the whole book. You're right. I mean, there's some places that are pretty dense with scientific <laughs> I'm, research. I'm not going to say and, that I didn't skip know. a couple pages, but there are pages that are just like digging into really dense um, studies. But it, to right. me, it's like the culmination, the end result is like, okay. There's a lot of evidence, <laughs> you know, you've, you've definitely done your work. Yeah. I mean, so the chapter that seems to resonate the most, I guess, uh-huh. with people, because there are, there are chapters of, of course, you're familiar with the book on environmental impacts right. and, and diversity concerns and what's happened in South America and yes. Europe and Hawaii and oh elsewhere. Oh my God, sort of, the woman who's, um, been th- who's been threatened and uh, at gunpoint mm-hmm. in uh, Argentina, in, I believe. Yeah, in Argentina, it's been a crazy battle. But, um, but the chapter that I hear most uh, feedback on is chapter four, which mm-hmm. is really just let's look at the pesticides mm-hmm. in our foods, in the mm-hmm. foods that you eat every day and that you feed to your kids. And chapter four and, is called Weed Killer for Breakfast. Right. <laughs> you know, that really seems to get to people in their gut because, right. you know, again, if, if you eat breakfast and lunch <laughs> yeah. or dinner, you're probably eating, you know, not only weed killer, but a little fungicide, you know, yeah. a little insecticide. Too, you so. talk about in the in the EU Parliament how they did a pee test, and mm-hmm. not very many members of Parliament were willing to do the test. But for those who were, what were the results mm-hmm. of their pee test? Right, they were very alarmed to find that they had this particular. 
uh, weed killer, glyphosate, in their urine. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's only one example. There there have been extensive tests done throughout the world in many mm-hmm. countries, and there's a lot of it going on right now in the United States to try to measure and track uh, glyphosate in our urine. You know, in the University of California, San Diego came out with some findings not too uh, long ago tracking people for 20 years and found like a 500% increase wow. in 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 exposure and over a thousand percent increase of the mean levels of the weed killer in individuals urine that they were tracking. So uh, it's this pervasiveness, it's this overuse uh, that is, just invading our bodies and our environment. And there are very clear implications for health, you know, related to this chemical and others. So, you know, that's why it's important for people to care and to pay attention to this stuff. This is your health. This is your children's health. Sometimes I feel like on a personal level, people would say they care, but that they're also just overwhelmed by the enormity of it. I mean, it's basically like you're saying, you know, you're the frog in the boiling water. Now I'm telling you that the boiling water is there, so you need to do something about it. You know, like uh, get out, like get out. <laughs> but it's water. like you're in this labyrinth. How do you get out? I mean, it's so complex, and it's so much. Uh, it's just infused with every part of our life. I mean, one thing you kind of barely touch on in the book. I mean, it's already a a, a weighty volume but so there's no way you could have covered it but is the amount of roundup glyphosate that's used on yards and lawns and public mm-hmm. parks and you know right. uh that's a whole other i think someone has written a book about that so i think it's called um um yard people or something lawn people or something. <laughs> Seriously, I, I, I have, don't know. I've I never have, heard of well, that. Well, anyway, it's a whole other because you know there's and there's no regulation on that like at least within the farming community there's some i assume there's some kind of limit on how much you can dump on your crops you know right well there are but, labels you know if you go buy roundup at home depot or, or right. your, your local lawn and garden store there will be labels with you know recommended use and 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 restrictions and things like that, that that they'll tell the homeowner i don't know how many people read the labels i don't know right how many people protect themselves or understand the dermal absorption uh, issues of glyphosate, how it is easily absorbed into your skin and gets into your blood system. These aren't things, yeah, everyday people um, pay attention to. I mean, in many different places around the country, uh, it's being restricted for home use. Um, There, you know, people are waking up and showing some concern and starting to understand that they need to pay attention to the risks and not just the rewards. Uh, but it's, but it's slow going and particularly here in the United States. Right. So. A while back you mentioned super weeds and I just wanted to talk about that for a second. Um, sure. I, it, when I was reading the book, I just pictured this like, uh, kind of freakish, um, <laughs> like, uh, nightmare scenario where the weeds are like, I think you said they're 12 feet tall in some places, like these just giant monster weeds. Um, how do, how do super weeds, um, take over a farmland and how are they related to herbicides, which are designed to not have weeds at all? So how does that work? Right. Right. Well, uh, you know, so weeds, it's like anything else in nature, like think about antibiotic resistance, right, or right. insect resistance or others. If you, you know, use this 
over and over and over again, these, you know, living <laughs> organisms mm-hmm. are, are going to um, respond and, and to change so that they can overcome this. And that's what weeds have done, many different varieties of weeds, uh, and they have developed resistance to glyphosate. So you can spray, you know, the world's most widely used weed killer on these weeds that plague farmers in their fields and they don't die anymore. Mm. And so what do farmers do? Well, they say, well, I'm going to double up. I'll spray even more. Well, they still don't die. So what do you do? I'll spray some other stuff on it. And uh, so farmers are, are spending a lot of money on increased inputs. They're being exposed, obviously, to greater quantities of these toxic pesticides. And, you know, in many cases, they just they they can't kill these weeds and the weeds right. are stripping out nutrients and moisture and, and things that the crops need and basically overwhelming the field. Mm-hmm. If they're 12 in, feet in tall, they're shading of, stuff out too. Yeah. I mean, if you, if they're getting 12 feet tall, you've obviously failed you've in your earlier battle. efforts. And <laughs> you've lost the battle. Um, yeah. But, you know, I've seen these, I've visited farmers in their fields and seen these weeds that are taller than I am. And uh, it's, it's a real thing, and uh, it's not everywhere across the country. There are estimates that it infects about more than 70 million acres in the United States in farmland, and mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the South, farmers have been really, you know, losing over a billion dollars. Are the estimates there by the ag people wow. uh, because of this weed resistance? So again, it's not it's it's not proper management of, of pesticides mm-hmm. and. Weed scientists warned the EPA about this. They warned Monsanto oh, really? that right. uh, years and years and years ago. And Monsanto convinced the EPA that the weed scientists were wrong mm-hmm. and that they didn't. And now we find out, of course, uh-huh. they weren't wrong. So, And when you say convince, I mean, how much of this is just like money changing hands? I mean, is it, is it, uh, is it useful to try to just track... Uh, I guess gifts and contributions and um, that type of support or what's the best way to attack that kind of like influence that Monsanto has on the EPA and USDA? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, people have talked about, I I personally have never seen any evidence, you know, that somebody from the chemical industry handed a big envelope of cash to the head Mm -hmm. of the EPA, you know, like Mm -hmm. I, Maybe that happens. I, right. I, maybe only in movies, right? I, I don't know. I think it's more subtle. There's a lot of what they call sort of the revolving door. You know, people from industry come work at the EPA, or if they're at the EPA and mm-hmm. they're friendly with industry, when they leave the EPA, they get a nice mm-hmm. job or nice mm-hmm. consulting or contracting work with the industry. Right. Uh, you've seen you've seen many examples of that. One guy in particular, you know, uh, who was very friendly with Monsanto. The Monsanto talks about in their memos about how useful he can be to them. You know, left the EPA and went had some nice contracting work with the chemical industry. You know, what was a year his name? Ago. Do you so recall that guy's name? That's, that's Jess Rowland. He mm-hmm. was the uh, guy who oversaw the cancer assessment work of glyphosate. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Office of Inspector General has said they're investigating to mm-hmm. look at. Good. Collusion allegations. Good. 
So see, there's you know, good things happening. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just think again, it's you know where money dominates, and you have lawmakers. You see in Monsanto's internal documents if they want something done, right. and they're not feeling like it's happening, they can have lawmakers pressure the political appointees who right. run these agencies, and then these agency political appointees can pressure the people below them, and it trickles down. You know this pressure. Um, from the corporate interest trickles down to mm-hmm. the people inside the agencies. And mm-hmm. you see that over and over and over again. So another character that we touched on earlier, and I, I just would love it if you could talk about him, is this guy, um, Jonathan Lundgren, who... Oh, right. If, yes. If I remember correctly, he was with the USDA as one of the researchers. Yeah, he was with the, the ARS, um, Ag Research Service, part of the USDA. Uh, he won awards. He was considered a you know pretty pretty sharp guy, uh, mm-hmm. really, uh, uh, really appreciated and, and well lauded for his work uh, until his research started running counter to chemical industry interests. Mm-hmm. And then he reports that he, his, some of his work was suppressed. He was um, restricted from traveling to conferences or other places mm-hmm. to speak about his work. Um, and he really felt that pressure that we just spoke about. And mm-hmm. so he was one of the brave <laughs> individuals. Mm-hmm. There are many others that we know of, um, but who actually came forward and, you know, filed a, a whistleblower lawsuit mm-hmm. against the agency. And, uh, you know, he was forced out. He left the agency. Um, and now he's running his own kind of research facility um, mm-hmm. and trying to continue to do the research, um, but no longer with the USDA. And so he's he's in the book and his story, and he's just one example of others who work in USDA and e- FDA and EPA who are concerned, who want to speak out truthfully, um, but feel suppressed and harassed if they try to do so. Do you mind if I read his quote at the end of the book? So I think it's I think it's just great. Um, yeah, I like his quote. At the end of Whitewash, um, without giving away the kind of stinger to the book, but Jonathan Lundgren says, innovation does not happen without the courage to question the current paradigm. And he goes on to say, if we do not change our behavior, then humans are in trouble. We know what needs to be done to solve these problems that our planet and species are facing. What is lacking is the changes, uh, the needed changes. Actually, I hadn't thought of it before, but as I was reading that quote this time, you know, there's people who say that uh, human beings just have a really hard time being able to take action when they know something like climate change, for example, is a real thing. Like, you know, the cognitive dissonance of knowing something is mm-hmm. exists and knowing that it needs to change, but just not being able to take the daily uh, small steps that are required since you know part of your reasoning for writing the book is to you know provide the information so that people can make those changes you know what you know this might be taking a leap on your part but what, what changes need to be made like or what changes can you make in your everyday life with your kids and so well so the whole last chapter talks about you know solutions and seeking mm-hmm. solutions and and we explore that i explore that in the book from uh new biological um 
applications for agriculture that are not based on synthetic chemicals, but are based on sort of microbes that are found in, in plant tissue and, and the soil and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are policy changes that the federal government can make, um, different subsidy programs, some that are already kind of starting and are underway, uh, different ways of just thinking about growing food mm-hmm. and rotating crops and using cover crops, things that farmers can do. Mm-hmm. Um and of course, consumers, you know, vote with their wallet. Really, mm-hmm. I mean, if you're, you know, worried about pesticides in foods, obviously you can seek out, you know, reduced pesticide foods like, you know, organics. Mm-hmm. Obviously, or you can. A lot of people are trying to grow their own, or maybe they want to mm-hmm. um, try to buy a lot of foods at farmers markets or from farmers they know. There's more, you know, direct marketing from from small farms that's happening now, and you can. Mm-hmm. So you know what the farmer's using. You can talk to him. You can visit the farm. Um, I mean, there are things people can do. Or people, some people say, we don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I don't care about it. Um, other people want to go to their city council and say, we don't need these pesticides sprayed in our parks where our kids play. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's happening around the country and with some degrees of success. Mm-hmm. Um, just alerting your neighborhood landscaping companies, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. to some of the dangers. So there's a lot of things that I hear people doing um, from a really, really local level to showing up in Washington, D.C. and marching or lobbying or sending letters to your congresspeople. I mean, it depends on how much energy you have, right? Right, yeah. Uh, How worried you are, how much you care, but there are many, many things. And obviously, this is the only way change has ever taken place in our country is, is when people get motivated and and act uh, and there's got to be that groundswell right there's got to be that that momentum that comes from all those different places i mean we we haven't even talked about like labeling of food i mean organic um food organic growers have to jump through hurdles to get labeled as such but there's no regulation there's no um mandate that says that uh gmo or uh you know uh, roundup sprayed crops have to be labeled as such so we we have no way of really knowing um but you're right it is this kind of like it's got to be this uh concert of uh consciousness and effort from everybody involved which is all of us right really (laughs) yeah exactly so information is power and uh i'm hoping that people will find some of that power in the book well i know i did and um one thing that I wrote in my Amazon review, um, which I know you uh, saw that, we talked about that a little bit, but, you know, this is a hard book to read. It's not hard because it's not well written, because it really is, but it's hard because you have to face up to some pretty some pretty real facts, and the facts are detrimental to all of this, and, but that's, that's a good thing. We need to we need to peel back the layers. And so you've certainly done that in whitewash. And I guess I'll leave with this question. This book came out just this year and it's really up to the minute with um, all the latest information. But since it's come out, what it, what's what's some of the burning uh, issues that you weren't able to include in the book that you that you uh, wish you could have or you're just, that's what you're working on? Right, now? well, Gosh, I mean, more internal documents have come out from Monsanto. You know, we had a number of them come out in August Mm -hmm. uh, after the book had already gone to publication. 
and more have trickled out, more will be coming out. These are really juicy internal emails and communications and memos from Monsanto mm-hmm. uh, talking about, you know, this chemical and what they need to do to protect it and how they, you know, have manipulated or plan to manipulate scientific, you know, papers and things. So, you know, you, we've seen all that. We're seeing more of it. Uh, it's probably enough for another book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and uh, we're still waiting, you know, for the EPA to deliver its new risk assessment of glyphosate, which oh, was right. due in 2015. Yeah, I mean, it was due in 2015. The EPA said uh, we'd have it then. Mm-hmm. They told us we'd have it in 2016. They told us we'd have it in 2017. Wow. It's almost, almost the end of 2017. So wow. it should be coming any day. And to hold to hold them accountable for that just must take so much pressure from so many different people uh, to get, move that bureaucracy along. I can't imagine. But I'm glad you're doing it, and I hope more people um, get hip to this and, and, and read the book or at least follow you on Twitter. And, um, and there's... Tons of articles, too. I mean, I feel like the news cycle just is spitting out more and more support for um, for all of this uh, kind of advocacy work against uh, the big chemical ad com- companies, and we need that. So I just want to say thank you for, for writing the book and for doing your work and for uh, helping us to be more aware, Carrie. Thank you. Thanks for, for caring and for talking to me about it. I appreciate it. Thanks okay. again, Carrie. Have a great Thanks. day. Thank you. All right, you too. Bye. Bye. All right, thank you so much for listening. Uh, please do check out Carrie on her Twitter feed at Carrie Gillum and also the U.S. Right to Know Twitter feed to uh, stay up to date on all this uh, exciting news and uh, hopefully we can make a change for the better. Um, please share this uh, episode with like-minded folks. You can find Farm On on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, contact me. I'd love to hear from you. I'm on Twitter at Farmon Dharma. That's Farmon, D-H-A-R-M-A. And my email is dharmaonthefarm at gmail.com. Um, as always, I would love to find a sponsor who could help pay for hosting this podcast and uh, purchasing stuff like mics and books and uh Skype call credits. I mean, this stuff really adds up. So if you're listening and you have some money kicking around and you want your name on this podcast, give me a shout. Until next time, follow the sun and farm on. Thanks for listening.